1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Your Own Personal Beatles with me, Jack Pelling. And me, Robin Allender. We've got a superb show coming up with the uh, academic and writer Christine Feldman Barrett who has written an amazing book called A Women's History of the Beatles.
2: Yep, it's a really, I really enjoyed reading it. She talks a lot to the fans at the time, I think, mm. which is really interesting. And she talks a lot about how the Beatles have kind of it changed women's lives and it kind of gave them a sense of purpose in a, in a lot of ways. Yeah. So it's it's not just about it does focus on the Beatles' wives but it also focuses on you know how the Beatles affected female fans and it's just a really interesting story very well told i thought.
1: Yeah. And sort of how integral they they were to them the going stratospheric and the beginning yeah. of um know a new era of uh, like fandom yeah um, and just really refreshing to read a whole book through that sort of female lens which is very overdue and you know it can get very male in the sort of musicological way mm. that the Beatles are talked about so yeah it's a really fascinating chat and she was really brilliant
2: yeah and there's a lot of um so this will be in the extended Patreon version but there was some good chat about the kind of American indie scene that she grew up in because she she kind of grew up in Northwest America in the late 80s, early 90s, so it was kind of really where it was at in terms of the kind of grunge thing kicking off. But, yeah, in the extended version, there's little clips of the posies and uh, screaming trees and some other kind of Beatles-influenced... Rock acts from the time, so it's uh, that's all good stuff. And we've also we should say we've also got a playlist, a Spotify playlist, where we've in- included a lot of songs we mentioned on the podcast, and kind of Beatles influence songs, Beatles Beatles covers, and songs we just like. Um, so yeah, we'll we've, we'll post that again on our social media because it's got it's got some absolute bangers on it.
1: Yeah, so uh, you can follow us on all of the social medias on Facebook and Twitter or on Instagram at Personal Beatles. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, then do uh, share your personal Beatles with us by going to personalbeatles.com forward slash contact. And if you want to hear that extended episode and you're not signed up to the Patreon, then uh, you can join, become a member, and you'll get all of that lovely stuff that uh, Robin was just talking about, plus extended ad free versions of all the other episodes in this series and some bonus episodes, including including uh volume two of our own personal beatles and our recent trip to abbey road with ellis james um so a lot, lot of bang yeah. for your buck there yeah
2: and speaking of the uh, our abbey road venture we do sort of touch on briefly uh abbey road and christine's feelings about it and they sort of mention the fact that abbey road sounds different to the other beatles records because it was mm. um They use the the Solid State desk. And there is a book that came out a couple of years ago, which I'm going to read. It's called Solid State, Mm -hmm. the story of Abbey Road and the end of the Beatles by Kenneth Womack. And I think... i'm sure that will go into the 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 lovely nerdy detail that we all kind of want to hear but it's really interesting i think it's a really interesting story because like i do think abbey road to a lot of people's ears doesn't really sound like a beatles record you know yeah and it's kind of pinning down the technicalities of that and obviously signaled the end of the beatles etc so yeah that sounds like a really good read
1: yeah, and speaking of the end of the Beatles this week, uh, we've seen the news that they are going to do a uh, Giles Martin remixed version of Let It Be, which is very interesting. It originally leaked, but there was no, it wasn't sort of it made explicitly clear whether it was sort of Giles Martin doing it. Obviously, George Martin had limited involvement in that project, so I was quite sort of quite surprised when he was confirmed to do it, but. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, they've released a couple of tracks on it um, on Spotify, which you can listen to now, including his mix of um, of Let It Be and uh, another sort of version of the of Don't Let Me Down, the first rooftop one, and um, a little glimpse of some of the Glyn Johns mixes um, for his, for the, his yeah. version of For You Blue is on there, which is much more drastically different to the the one that you know it's sort of
2: some of the Glyn Johns mixes are actually different takes aren't they so some of the yeah. some of the issues are that the Spectre mixes are of better takes but they are less edifying mixes depending on your point of view you know yeah. i think i think this is something kind of we we touched on in a recording we did yesterday that um the perfect Let It Be stroke Get Back album just isn't out there. It's this kind of... Yeah. I don't think it'll ever exist, and it will yeah. constantly be reiterated. And I don't know, like, I think some kind of combination of the original with the anthology versions with Let It Be Naked, I think if you can piece it together and make a playlist yourself, I think everyone is just entitled to their own personal Let It Be. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm not sure yeah. the Giles Martin... I'm not sure a Giles Martin mix will get us any closer to that personally, but I mean...
1: No, I mean, certainly judging from what I've heard so far from the uh, uh, their mm. version of Let It Be, it's like there's nothing drastically different. There's nothing that sort of shouted out to me. It just it seems sounds a little bit more modern and the drums sound a bit nicer mm. and they've um, sort of pulled back that the falsetto sort of oohs and ahs and pushed up the, the brass a bit but there's nothing there's not mm. enough to play with to really make it sort of sparkle like there are in the really dense yeah. recordings of Abbey Road and Sgt Pepper.
2: Well, you know, one of the criticisms of Let It Be Naked is the fact that there was a lot of gate used on it, noise gate to reduce mm. the noise, you know, and because yeah. it was very it was it was comparatively like poorly recorded compared to other Beatles records and you know, of course that's what people like about it as if that's the version you grew up with. There's more, you know, grit and authenticity to it, and at the same time as well, I was chatting to the journalist Simon Price on Twitter, who said his absolute favourite Beatles song is "The Spectre um, Long and Winding Road" with strings, really, you know, uh, strings and everything. Yeah. So I just think it's it's weird, like you know,
1: horses for courses.
2: I mean, it's it's horses for courses, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) There is no, it. There's no definitive version so it's it's just kind of interesting mm. and it's called let it be yeah. which is kind of ironic isn't it
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> forget it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and in other beatles news uh mccartney 321 is also out now on disney plus for people who didn't pirate it mm. but um if you haven't watched that uh it's his sort of six-part documentary of him just sitting around and mixing desks with rick rubin doing a sort of deep dive into some Beatles and wings and solo pool stuff. And, um, while mm. not massively revelatory, it's a really, really brilliant watch. And if you love Paul talking about that sort of stuff, there are some moments of magic in it. Um, I really like the sort of stylistic choice that they've made to, um, you know, it's all shot in black and white, but everything that's, all the footage from the early days is all sort of colorized. So it really does a great job mm. of like pulling that stuff into the present, which is really nice.
2: Yeah, I think there are some really lovely moments in it. Where I, I like the one where he's just talking about how he was originally l- writing songs just learning the basic triad and on the piano and going up and down you know, there you go you've already got six chords and you know and then going into let it be that is a kind of quite
1: mm.
2: you know hairs on the back of the neck kind of moment and but yeah there are some stuff which you know you will have heard Paul McCartney say before it's funny because i i just got that mark Lewis and, um the beatles recording sessions i found it in a in an oxfam um mm. uh, the other day which is really good and in the introduction first thing I saw was Paul McCartney saying, you know, in the desk there was a pop and or, classical setting, and we were always going, what's the classical setting? And that's one thing he does in <laughs> Rick Rubin as well. Yeah. So it's just funny to see how these stories kind of, uh, he does kind of come back to the the old favourites.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you do get a sort of variation on the B7 story about sort of three and a half minutes in. At that point, I did think, um, mm. how are they going to spin out three in a bit hours of this? But actually, uh, he delves off into a yeah. new story about uh, F Major 7. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but I think yeah. it's
2: good. I mean, I I really enjoyed it. And like at first I thought, okay, Rick Rubin all he seems to be doing is just going, "Wow." <laughs> wow. But I yeah. don't know, I just I think the relationship worked and it's like, I don't know, it mm. very, it felt fresh and it was it was very moving, you know, I I just I thought it was great. I mean it's more McCartney, what more do you want? It's great. <laughs> yeah.
1: And he does have a brilliant sort of he does spot things in takes of uh, songs that you know brilliantly well and isolates certain parts certain parts of them and mm. does have some some really good sort of quite astute ideas about the how those things are stacked on top of each other really.
2: Yeah, I think so one of the things Rick Rubin keeps coming back to is this idea that, you know, the bass and drums uh If you're in isolation and then you listen to the guitar and vocals and it's like two different songs, you know, Mm. that's something he mentions on a couple of tracks and I think that's really interesting. The bass and drums are really digging in. Mm. Um, But if you take them away, it's quite a gentle song and in that kind of tension and dynamic is a lot of what makes Beatles songs great. I, li- I like that. That was really good.
1: Yeah, so I'd highly recommend that. Um, so we haven't got any correspondence this week um, because we're recording this quite early. <laughs> um, we've, we've only just put one out. So um, but if you do want to get in touch with us, you can go to the usual channels, uh, personalbeatles.com forward slash contact. And uh, we'll be back at the end of the show to talk a little bit about what's coming up next week. Uh, but until then, enjoy this superb episode with the wonderful christine feldman barrett today on this uh, special episode of your own personal beatles we are joined by the writer christine feldman barrett who's got a fabulous new book called a women's history of the beatles joining us from brisbane australia hi christine how are you
3: doing really well thanks so much for having me on great to meet you both
2: thanks for thanks for joining us yeah that's great we both really enjoyed the book um yeah, I thought it was it was really really interesting, very well researched. Uh, what, what was the kind of um, background to it? Why why did you decide to uh, write this this side of the Beatles story?
3: Well, do you want the long version of the story or the <laughs> very academic shorter version of um, the
2: story? Let's have let's have a bit of the long one and then kind of see if that can integrate into the academic one
3: sure. <laughs> sure. I mean, I think it's, I think it's all related, clearly. Uh, I think, for me, The Beatles is the one constant in my life in many respects. I've moved around. Obviously, I've ended up in Australia. I grew up in Chicago, born to a German mother, an American father. So I grew up in a bilingual household, speaking German at home. So right there you can see that there's one strong connection already to the Beatles' story in that as as a young girl, seeing that connection that the Beatles had to Hamburg was especially compelling to me. And then also to know that Ostrid uh, Kircher, that there was this woman in that part of the story who was such a prominent An influential figure was really exciting to me as well. But yeah, the Beatles have traveled with me through my whole life and it really is a love story that's lasted uh, this whole time. And as a child, it was really about bonding with my sister. I have a sister who's five years older. I was born in the early 70s. She's born in the mid-60s. And the Beatles, I mean... My parents liked the Beatles, sure, but for some reason, there were no Beatles records in the house. They would talk about how they saw them on the Ed Sullivan show soon after they were married. My parents were married in late November 1963, I think not long after the Kennedy assassination, actually. I think it was like November 30th or so, and my mom had just come over from Germany, basically, and... uh, they have this very fond memory of watching that together as newlyweds with a bunch of friends. And so it was surprising, I guess, that we didn't have any Beatles records at home, but we did through a babysitter who left us her collection of 45s. So I must have been five, five years old when I first heard those singles. So the first Beatles songs I heard would have been Uh, The Eight Days a Week single with I Don't Want to Spoil the Party on the other side, Mm. uh, Paperback Writer and Rain. Those were my favourites. That's a cracker. Oh.
1: That's great. I would dance
3: around our, you know, family room, sort of like in the basement, (laughs) Uh, this big family room with a fireplace on one side and the stereo was there. And I somehow figured out how to use the turntable. (laughs) I I was very young, but I somehow figured it out. I must've seen my sister do it, my dad do it. And I just went for it. And so I'd just be dancing around on my own. Oftentimes my sister wasn't even there. So those were my, my favorite songs to begin with. Mm. And then I believe that same year, My parents wanted to go on a trip on their own over Easter weekend, and so it was the first trip my sister and I took on our own to visit our favourite auntie in Denver, auntie and uncle, and they played us the White Album. And uh, it was funny because for a long time I thought the very first Beatles album that I ever heard was the Blue Album, which... For my generation, is very typical yes. that came out. I think in the early seventies. Yeah. So this would have been nineteen seventy six or so.
2: Yeah, and and the the white album isn't very well represented on the blue album, as it were. So I think a lot of people no. have this in, you know discovery when they hear the white album, like what is all this stuff? You know. <laughs>
3: <laughs> exactly, but to this day, I think the white album is my favorite mm. Beatles album alongside rubber soul Mm -hmm. and it's probably because of that early memory of course the songs that i really loved as a five-year-old are not the songs i love now (laughs) from the white (laughs) album i have this strange memory of really loving the continuing story of bungalow bill me too
2: that was my Mm -hmm.
0: first
3: i really but you know to a five-year-old i think that would be the perfect song yeah the the yeah the story element, of course, mm. and the sing songiness, and the different voices—you have Yoko, mm. you know, doing a guest appearance on that yeah, song, yeah, and yeah. Uh, and Rocky Raccoon. And it's not that I dislike those songs now, but I wouldn't say they're favorites mm, mm, from that album. Mm, yeah, but yeah, those are those are really early memories. Sure. And then I would say by seventy eight, seventy nine, so I was seven, eight years old there was this <laughs> disco period in my childhood <laughs> yeah. where we were listening to a lot of the Bee Gees. Sure. We actually saw Andy Gibb in concert. That was, I think, my second concert I'd wow. ever gone to. Nice. Uh, so then we we saw the Bee Gees' Sergeant Pepper right. film. Right. <laughs> oh, boy.
1: I've never seen that. Um, maybe that's something we should do. Yeah, together, yeah. But... Um, for, for people who are not aware of that film, it's sort of. Sort of it's just a bit of a sort of mad ex- experiment that people can't really get their heads around how, how it happened. But I think it was more famous in America than it was here.
2: Yeah, I mean, considering it's like two of the most famous groups who ever existed, as in there's a Beatles film with the Bee Gees, not many people seem to know about it.
3: I know. But. Of course, I think even then I was I was trying to remember my feelings of seeing that film, and it was disappointment right. for sure. Yeah. It just didn't it didn't resonate as much as I really liked the Bee Gees at the time. Mm. I think my Beatles fandom even then yeah. was kind of insulted
1: <laughs>
3: by, that, <laughs> by that film.
1: It's such a bizarre thing to think about now, though. Can you imagine, sort of? Popular band today. What, like Ed, Ed Sheeran films. being
2: in a Beatles film. Yeah, that sounds insane. <laughs> <laughs> or Ed Sheeran oh. covering uh, <laughs> the most
1: popular album of uh, 2011, mm. whatever right, that might right. be.
3: There was that crossover, and yeah. then from then on, it was sheer childhood Beatlemania for right. me and my sister. Cool. Because we were in Chicago, we were able to go to what was then called Beatlefest, and it's now called yeah. uh, the Fest for Beatles fans, and it's a a convention, essentially, for Beatles fans that they have in New York and Chicago, and it's been running since
1: 1974. What's the... Um- What's the sort of uh, demographic of uh, a Beatle Fest tour?
3: I can remember going there as an eight year old with my 13 year old sister and my mom chaperoning the whole event, of course. And all the people who had been first generation fans obviously they dominated that whole scene. And I remember I made a hand drawn button because I didn't have any Beatles pins or buttons and so i i drew one and the women who were checking us in who were clearly of that generation they would have been teenagers in the 60s Mm. when the beatles first came on the scene and they just thought it was so cute you know they just because Mm. there were so few kids i think at that time who were turning up i think there were older teenagers there older than my sister you know probably 16 17 18 year olds who are running around but the second generation fans were pretty thin on the ground at mm, that point
2: yeah and this is yeah this is something you cover in the book i think it's a really it's really you write about it really well this kind of idea that there ways in which each generation discovers the beatles and i think you know it's definitely something i can identify with and um a similar generation to your own i think <laughs>
3: I did write something about the Beatles before the book, but it was a shorter journal article. Mm. Um, But I had started working on a big project on mod culture that turned into my PhD. Okay. And that, that brought me to Hamburg and it brought me into the orbit of some of those german people i had read about as a child so that was quite exciting
2: this is something i'm kind of quite interested in but what do you think of the aging mod demographic there's a as as a as a you must be quite a mod expert but do you have this in australia where there are men who who are you know fair play to them but they're still rocking those haircuts and those shirts and those jackets (laughs) yeah there's a phrase here which is (laughs) A, well- a well-end? Have you heard that phrase? Well-ends?
3: No. <laughs> no, I haven't actually. Well, Tell me what that is.
2: <laughs> okay. Hi there, it's Robin here from the future. So, at this point in the podcast, I explain to Christine what a well-end is. So, for those of you that don't know, a well-end is a pejorative term for an ageing mod, deriving from the words weller, as in pulled weller, and bell-end. Christine hadn't heard the word bellend before, which, if you didn't know, is a British insult referring to a part of the male anatomy. So much embarrassment ensued, which I've done my best to edit out for your benefit, and I really do apologise for lowering the tone.
3: (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, look, I I actually think it's really interesting. I haven't done research so much into aging and subcultures but there is a whole area in academia now where people are studying that you know you don't just give up as we know we haven't given up our interest in the Beatles and so people who were punks or who were mods uh they've a lot of people have obviously that's part of their identity yeah totally or it is their core identity so yeah.
1: Well, fair enough. I mean, yeah, I live in Camden Town, so I see a lot of people who are really still sticking to the cause in terms of the punk mod uh, into well into the 60s. Well,
2: one of my very good friends, Rich in Edinburgh, is uh, still rocking the mod aesthetic and I I love I used to love going for a drink with him. He always insists on standing at the bar. He never sat down cuz like he just liked to show up his clothes more or something. You know, it's just <laughs> like that performative thing. Like I really like that, you know. So it's, it's totally you
3: know, and he loves his clothes. It's good. There is a sizable, I would say, not too small mod scene here. There's still events that happen. I mean, obviously, this past year, not really, but uh, there's they're starting up again, slowly but surely now. So they'll have mod '60s garage nights where people go to dance, and I've been to some of them here, and they're a lot of fun. So. Yeah, definitely still happening. But when I was in Hamburg, I was studying the contemporary mod scene. So I wasn't specifically studying the Beatles at that point. But I was very interested in that early XE history in Hamburg and wanting to know if there was some sort of link between the Xes and the early, the very early, like, modernist mods.
2: Yeah. So Exes was the kind of existentialists, wasn't it? That's that was, that was kind of quite chic group of people including Astrid Kircher and people like this and and obviously Stuart Sutcliffe and uh...
3: exactly so I did you know I was fortunate enough to have some contact with those folks I unfortunately never got to interview Astrid I would have loved to have done that I did meet Mm. her on two occasions briefly Mm. and a very lovely woman and Mm. I did I did get to meet and interview Klaus Forman for the Mods oh, wow. project, which Great. that was just a bit crazy. I just found his email and emailed yeah. him and told him what I was doing. And he said, sure. Yeah.
1: That's amazing. Oh, amazing. Great. He seems like well. such a lovely, lovely bloke. Yeah. Oh, I mean, so nice. Career yeah. he's had is incredible, <gasps> yeah. isn't it? You know. It's yeah. such a, like, he's a phenomenal bassist as well, Yeah, I was he just wasn't say. really a bassist.
2: <laughs> yeah, I know. Exa- but he's got that kind of quite naive approach, which works, I think. Yeah. So different to Paul. But.
1: Especially in that three-piece with um with John and Ringo on Plastic Ono, Band. they just released all of those sort of stripped-down uh, stuff for the anniversary, and you can really hear what he's doing, and he's, like, mm. the three of them are, like, properly tight. You wouldn't have thought yeah, that he would just yeah. be basically... Shipped in because he is uh, one of the only people they all got on with still. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a testament to his character, I suppose. Yeah,
2: he's definitely giving the Steve Jones as opposed to Glenn Matlock approach to bass playing as well. I think. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? Like, yeah, I, I mean he's all, he, he, he's a brilliant bass player, but he he doesn't do the kind of melodic twisty turny bass playing mm. that Paul does as much. Mm. Yeah, it's very gentle, which mm-hmm. is what well, you know. But they're, well, they're both great. Approaches, but I think yeah. you can tell Lennon loving leading into that in 1970. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So let's go back to after Hamburg, so our Hamburg mod culture, the X's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
3: so
2: also that's, sounds
1: great in a Liverpool accent. Yeah. Like, X. Exies. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
3: yeah, right, right. Yeah, so that was really the stepping stone to get here eventually. I mean, a lot of other things happened. I, I guess I was thinking, you know what am I doing as an academic? I'm into subcultures, I'm into popular music. What is it exactly that I want to do in terms of positioning myself in the academic world as being an expert mm. on what? And I realized that for me, it was really uh, youth culture history. And what is mm. more central in my mind to youth culture history than the Beatles? So, yeah. I and, mm. and of course, uh, being a woman who's played in different bands and different music scenes and has always loved the Beatles. I was a little bit shocked when I really thought about it, how there wasn't a very strong voice in the writing about the Beatles Mm. coming from women's perspectives. And so, and I had written about women being involved in other subcultures, like the mod subculture, obviously because of that project. And, Yeah, I thought it was time to take a closer look at women's experiences of being either in the Beatles story and the cultural history of of the time, but also the later generations of fans who hadn't really been given a voice so much.
2: Well, yeah, I think this is the lovely thing about your book is that you're going... um you're interviewing people who are there just, just who are fans and you know, who played a part in that fandom, as opposed to, you know, say, like some of the, the big characters in the story. You go down to the actual demographic of who was listening and what the experience was like as a fan at the time, which I think is really refreshing. And So like, to start with in the book, then, I think a great chapter is about analysing the fam- fandom and how it was viewed quite negatively at times as, quite his- as hysteria, which is obviously a very loaded gender term and uh, and the, your your book is brilliant at saying that these women had agency you know and influenced their lives and creative decisions and opened up um kind of uh, career prospects and things that you know all kinds of prospects, social, cultural um so they were a lot more than just screaming fans so um yeah, do you want to maybe talk about that aspect of the book if if there's?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Well, on one hand, I just want to say that the screaming and the girls going crazy for the Beatles, nothing wrong with that. No, yeah, of course. I am totally on board with that concept. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, totally. uh, And the Beatles did prompt such an emotional reaction from men and women just in different ways. And... And even within, I guess what I wanted to show was that on the other hand, you know, we can see a full spectrum of responses to what the Beatles brought into people's lives. And of course, looking at girls and young women, what did that mean? And in the 60s anyway, the Beatles being at the core of what's going on is so fascinating given the changes for women as well during that decade. You know, this is a a time period where it's not a given that girls are dreaming about what they want to do when they grow up in terms of a career. That's not a question that's really necessarily being asked of them by their parents or other adults around them. There's that presumption that, well, of course, the main thing you're going to do is get married and have children, and that's, that's enough, really. And so it's in the 60s where, or when, <laughs> I should say, that uh, young women are starting to think about, well, hey, you know what? I, I actually am really into writing, or I'm really into music. I, I want to explore these things a little bit more. And there is a really steep rise in the number of, young women, for instance, who decide to go to university, not just in the States, but in the UK, in Australia, in most of the Western world, there's this real steep climb where you see in 1960 versus 1970, the number of women who are choosing to think about higher education, you know, different kinds of careers it really, it does change in the 60s. And so the Beatles are part of that change. And that's why I thought it went so well together to look at these things, that the Beatles as creative people become these role models for everyone. But for young women, for girls, it's even more potent, I think. It's even more um, something special to them because the Beatles are... Through their songs and through their personas, they, they become representatives of this kind of new freedom. And for women, that's huge. For girls, that's huge. To think about, yeah, it's not just for the, my brothers and these teenage guys around me to start bands and uh, think about a new way to live your life. We can do that, too. We can do it. And the Beatles are inviting the girls in, I think, in many yeah. ways.
1: And I think it's really interesting that um, in some of the sort of um, snapshots of interviews that you've taken from, especially around that sort of cavern club era, is that, that those girls come across as being really sort of intelligent, very aware of the almost sort of transactional role that they're playing as well in in the kind of their relationship with the Beatles. Like the Beatles kind of need them in those early stages more than the, the other way around. Mm. Yeah. And, and
2: there's a lovely sense of that tight-knit community in those early Cavern years that was then lost when they became globally successful. And, you know, the, the, the Cavern fans used to be able to ring up, you know, look up Paul's number in the phone book and give him <laughs> a call. And all that kind of stuff is, is fantastic, isn't it? Um,
1: yeah. So I think in yeah. so many of those documentaries as well, and I think something you mentioned in the book, that a lot of those sort of familiar shots of, of sort of 63, 64 of, like, throngs of hysterical women. Are actually, they're sort of quite carefully selected in terms of uh, you know what how the audiences behaved like in those in those early days before everything got you know Beatlemania sort of really kicked off but um, yeah they definitely were sort of seemed like proper music fans and knew the set lists inside out they weren't just there to you know (laughs) howl at people. Uh,
3: Sure and and I think there were girls like that who were at Shea Stadium as well, you know? But yeah, they, didn't, yeah. they obviously didn't have that uh, privilege of being there when the Beatles were part of that tight-knit music scene and music community. So the girls in Liverpool and the Merseyside region who could participate in that, I mean, that is such a rare experience. And I think that's... That's why it fascinates so many people, that idea of being in this tiny club with this band that's just amazing. And a few years later, everything is off the hook. You know, they're global megastars. They're unreachable, untouchable. And meanwhile, in 1962 in Liverpool, you could be walking down the street with your girlfriend and Paul McCartney pulls up and offers to drive you somewhere because <laughs> yeah, he recognizes yeah. you from one of the girls at the cavern that's alwe- who's always there. So it, it, it's just those stories are so important, I think, for establishing also that, and I've said this before, but I think it bears repeating, is that there was such a friendly, cordial rapport Mm. between the Beatles and the girls who were there. With Beatlemania, and again, I'm not saying this is not part of it, because it certainly is part of the story that girls crush out on the Beatles, they fancy one of the Beatles, that is definitely part of what's going on. But in Liverpool, there's also that respectful, friendly interaction that's happening between the female audience members and the members of the band
2: one thing that obviously the Beatles appeal was was that they were really nice boys you know (laughs) but I suppose the question is were they nice I mean you know like there's a great quote in the book Yoko saying when I first met Lennon he was a chauvinist Uh, I don't think she says pig but you know (laughs) but you know and then obviously when we're going later in the history the apple scruffs and I think when we interview John Ronson he said a a quote a a comment about you know was what was George Harrison's relationship with the Scruffs? You know,
1: well, I think Olivia Harrison talks about that quite candidly in um, in the Scorsese doc, doesn't she? Where we've become a little bit—it's uh, a less polished view of his sort of uh, relationship with fans, especially.
2: Yes, yeah, and so and John's affairs as well, and so it's it's more complicated, I suppose, because obviously part of the Beatles' appeal was that they were. They were nice and they were, you know, faintly androgynous as well in some ways. And, you know, if you think about the songs they covered and mm, the, the,
0: mm.
2: The, the, the the way the songs aren't aggressively st- like stonesy kind of in the terms of the yeah. way they describe relationships or even covering something, you know, like Please Mr. Postman, I th- you know, a girl group song or covering boys is it kind of as simple as that or is there a kind of another side you know, let's say
3: oh it's it's definitely complex it's complicated these are young men growing up in a certain period of history where again things are changing for women but things are changing for men as well and so people are products of their time and there is going to be that element to the story where the the dynamic between men and women in general is quite different then, in many ways, to what it is now. And in saying that, I think there's the side of the Beatles that is the image, the personas, the marketing, all of that, that you're talking about where they are the nice boys next door. They're kind of arty and cool and stylish but they are the nice boys who live down the street and in Liverpool that was obviously the case but (laughs) but then there are those things that you're talking about that have to do more with the individual men and their histories with women going all the way back you know to their childhood and and the sort of matriarchal society that liverpool was and i do talk about it that in the book you know that the the relationships that each one of them had with their mothers is quite interesting in different ways certainly they had very different experiences but what i think they share is that they all saw women as very capable Mm, mm, individual
2: mm,
3: people that women weren't this sort of uniform blanket of all women are like this or like that. They saw that women could be eccentric, that women could be uh, really into, for instance, George's mother was really a music lover uh, who instilled that in him. Mary McCartney was a hardworking person and really aspirational. And I think all of that is super fascinating in terms of the earliest influences on the Beatles as people. definitely. And, yeah, it's complicated. I think there were times when all of the Beatles said things that for people living in 2021, we might think, um, hmm, in terms of gender discourse or, you know, discussions about men and women and women's roles and men's roles, because, of course, again, they were part of this really transformational time and we're still seeing the effects of those changes in terms of gender roles in terms of relationships in general between men and women but I think the Beatles still are ahead of the curve especially in the lyrics that they're putting out there the amount of vulnerability they're able to show in the songs I mean I have a real love for John Lennon songs in sort of that early to mid Beatles period, really middle Mm. period, I guess. Sort of help. Help, help uh, yeah, You've Got to Hide Your Love Away. And um, what was the other song I was thinking of? I Don't Want to Spoil the Party. Those kinds of, I think.
2: I'm a loser. The
3: Beatles. Yeah, I'm a loser. The whole Beatles for sale album
2: actually has
3: a lot of that going on. I
2: love that for that reason. Yeah, it's such a John-heavy album, you know, I think it's
3: great. Yeah, but when he shows that vulnerable side and I think when all of them are willing to do that to a certain degree and to really include the way they regard women in all these different ways, I think that is the magic of the Beatles in terms of where they really understand the complexity and the beauty of relationships between men and women they they do that so fantastically well in many of their songs so we can separate out the individuals their experiences their relationships and so on but then looking at the actual music they're producing and also the personas that are out there floating around and, and what young women are thinking about these four guys those are two different things mm. I think that are going on mm.
2: yeah definitely
1: one of the um so you write really well about the um later on in the book about the uh, specific relationships in, uh, with, uh, with sort of beetle wives and mm-hmm. stuff mm-hmm. um and we were chatting the other day to um uh, another podcast that is coming out soon but um Shappi Korsandi, a comedian who made a really good point the the comparisons between um, Yoko and sort of what, uh, how the British press especially treats sort of Meghan Markle, um, which is not really something I'd thought about, but it actually is, um, makes you think, ah, actually, maybe we haven't sort of moved on that far. <laughs> mm-hmm. But do you think mm-hmm. there is something in the, I mean, you talk a lot about... Um, the Beatles sort of fairy tale and them mm-hmm. as kind of princes, which sort of, sort of reinforces that kind of parallel, but it's interesting that when they got as big as you know when they were at their peak there was this there's this sort of strange ownership over them from the British kind of press and and the public, I suppose, in that they felt entitled enough to dictate who what kind of women they should end up with do you do you think that's a, a sort of inherently British thing that sort of public ownership of these figures.
2: I was, I was going to say, if you don't mind me just chipping in before... <laughs> I was, I was, I was, I was going to add to this as well to say... I think it's really interesting in the book you talk about how Jane Asher and Patty Boyd mm. were kind of more respected. And I do think it's this British, particularly British tabloid thing, where hmm. if someone's kind of an outsider, they get treated a lot worse. Whereas if someone's kind of already part of the cultural world of the UK then they kind of, it's a story they're more willing and able to tell. So Jane Asher, Paul McCartney makes sense. You know, Patty Boyd, George Harrison makes sense. Linda Eastman and Paul doesn't make sense. Yoko and John doesn't make sense. And so that's the kind of, they're outsiders. And I think think that's a really, that's a very common thing with British tabloid press. But Christine, sorry, I, I, I interrupted before you could... There, so no, no,
3: no. Those are those are all really great points. And I have heard more recently, and I've seen articles where they bring up Yoko Ono's name in relation to Meghan Markle. So I know that that's been talked about before, that idea of um, the outsider coming into this very established world and being seen as this disruptor of the harmony and peace and joy and Grooviness of everything that's going on—that's <laughs> yeah. um, very much. I mean, it—it it really became so clear to me when I was writing the book, when I'd been doing the research and looking through all these different ways that, for instance, Linda McCartney had been, or Linda Eastman had been written about, talked about. Same with Yoko Ono. Oh and I mean, that's interesting that you're saying it also is something endemic to the British tabloid press. I hadn't really scoped that out specifically because coming from the American context, first of all, all the, even as a very young person and a young Beatles fan coming into contact with whatever information I could, both about Linda, who's a fellow American, right? And Yoko Ono, who really, you know, uh, did a lot of her uh, well, she went to university in the States and moved to New York when she was still pretty young. Uh, so she's been in the U.S. for a long time. Uh, and I, there was a lot of negative press in the States as well. And in Japan, I found out through the research, there was also some negative press around Yoko, but for different reasons, different reasons. Um, There's a really great book by an academic here in Sydney, I believe. Um, It's The Beatles in Japan is the book. And it's a whole, she goes through the whole history. Her name's Carolyn Stevens. She goes through the whole history of the Beatles' relationship with Japan. And there's, of course, a whole section on John and Yoko. And it was very interesting to find out that in the Japanese press, they saw her as not quite the correct representative of, you know, Japanese womanhood. So she was seen as eccentric there as well.
2: I, I think one of the things with Yoko, and uh, I was just thinking this in, in, in terms of her negative uh, representation, is I think a lot of people see photos of Yoko in the studio and they just assume she's, like, uh, doing nothing. She's just there and kind of watching over people and being judgmental. But it's like, yeah, but they were... I mean they're A, they're photographs, so you don't know the whole story. And B, they're playing music, so she's not gonna be I don't know, like I think it's I heard a really lovely interview uh, recently. It's John John and Yoko talking about Happiness is Warm Gun, where they've got it playing in the background and they're talking about it. And Yoko's just so full of agency and so full of the kind of remembering what it was like to for when John was writing it and talking about how it's kind of collagey, and she's so full of those ideas and Boun- bouncing stuff off John, you know, and I think people just don't see that because they see these photographs as like, oh, there's there's this kind of presence in the studio, kind of causing this, you know, disruption or whatnot. You know, I think that's kind of people just don't hear Yoko talking. She do- it's like she doesn't have a voice. You know, it's like.
0: Oh, this is a great one. <laughs> <laughs> they never play this. <laughs> Happiness is a warm gun.
1: Oh, I love it. I love this. I remember the day that uh, he was making it, you know, this is when, uh, uh we were in, yeah, Kenwood. and me and I. No, you were making this song in Kenwood. Oh, yeah.
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. This is camp, you know. <laughs> 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 you didn't you know? No,
1: didn't follow. <laughs> <laughs> now this is a really good one.
0: I, I thought this song covered the whole gamut of rock and roll in a way through different phases. You know? It was a miniature
1: collage. It was a collage.
0: Oh, George.
3: It'll be really, really interesting to see with the new Peter Jackson get back film what uh, because even in the the little preview that's been run recently you see these images of yoko and linda sort of smiling and you know it's a and we i think you barely see linda and let it be is my recollection of it it's been a while since i've watched that now
2: she she brings her child in doesn't she i think and i think um but yeah she's in it very very briefly i think you yeah. know
3: Right, yeah. but I remember the first time seeing that. It may have been at Beetlefest um, way back when, seeing Let It Be for the first time, and just uh, just being a bit confused by the shots of Yoko in there, and hearing all the people around me making these sort of negative sounds in response to seeing her, and it was just shocking to me that there was such a negative response to those images and you really don't hear her say a lot in the film right it's just those shots of her Um, so that was that was something that was important for me to address I think in the book was just this idea of there is this kind of othering like you're saying going on especially of Linda and Yoko um, that they just don't fit this narrative that uh, is out there in the public about who the Beatles should be pairing with, and I've always liked—I always liked both of them. Yeah, yeah, really. I mean,
2: you make a good point about what in the book about what was so appealing to John and Paul about them was that they were the kind of own people and they were different and challenging and creative, you know.
3: Absolutely, uh,
2: I think that you you write about that very well. Mm.
3: Oh, thank you. And it's not to say, I mean, I think Jane Asher is such an interesting figure in the story as well. definitely. And she is is somebody who is independent. She's very career-minded. She is, and that's why I think a lot of the teen magazines, especially in the States, but also in the UK and Australia, they positioned her as, you know, this is the modern girl of the 60s. You know, this is the type of... um, woman you should aspire to be she's a go-ahead girl she's an actor she's doing all these exciting things and she has a Beetle boyfriend what could be better
2: and, and 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 since and since the 60s she's been so dignified about it as well I think she's just yeah. she's kept on with her career and she's just said she would just won't talk about Paul she's you know she says she finds it insulting you know it was like 40 years ago whatever you know and that, I think that's great you know because you know, I, I, growing up watching British TV, you know who she is. I didn't know the Beatles connection until years later, you know. So, mm, you know, she's yeah. managed to establish her own place, you know, which is great.
3: Absolutely. But, yeah, it just... And Patty Boy, too, you know. I think um, they're all very interesting figures in the whole Beatles history. And it it's just, I think, for me, having studied um, media and sociology, it was interesting to think about how were they positioned in that and how are they continually being positioned in that Beatles cultural history and how can we maybe consider them in a, in a new and different way. And and also, you know, fans talk about them a lot and especially, you know, I think men and women, but just speaking with female friends who are Beatles fans, they're always, Wanting to talk about Yoko and Linda and Cynthia and Patty and Jane, that they're so much a part of the story that people are fascinated with them and the different dimensions of them within the whole history. Yeah,
2: and I think Paul's relationship with Jane is so interesting, wasn't it? Because he was being challenged by this family. You know, he's being introduced to lots of new things, art and culture. He wrote a lot of songs. At the Ashers' house, There's the love songs to Jane and, or not even love songs, but, but you know maybe something like "For No One," which is a kind of song which is like, kind of, where's this going? Kind of <laughs> relationship yeah. song, you know. The, the, some of those most those most beautiful and complex songs are about the Jane relationship. I
3: think. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And that whole that whole time of Paul being in London and living with the Ashers that's such a formative period for him as a songwriter, but also as someone who really wants to soak up the cultural change that's happening. Yeah. And as we know, his bandmates are all in the suburbs and he's, he's the one who's there, who's going to the clubs and checking out bands all the time. And yeah, Yeah,
2: that's interesting. I wanted to talk about, cause so we started by talking about the white album and as your favorite album. And, um, I wanted to talk about why do you think that has so much appeal to uh, women who've covered the songs on the White Album and to, mm. um, I suppose, the kind of indie, punky generation mm. that we talked about. You know, it definitely seems to be the touchstone for people like mm. Elliot Smith, uh, Breeders covering Happiness is a Warm Girl, which is absolutely brilliant, that cover. Mm. <laughs> I was just listening to it so this good. morning. It's so mm. powerful.
3: Yeah. The touch of a velvet hand like a lizard on a window pane. Man in the crowd with the multicolored mirrors on his hobnail boots. Lying with his eyes
0: while his hands are busy working overtime.
2: And obviously, Susie and the Banshees covering Dear Prudence. And- uh, so, what, and, and Billie Eilish as well. I didn't realize this is in the book. Billie Eilish is one of her first, I couldn't find it on YouTube, but she did cover Happiness is Warm Gun. She's also covered I Will, but unfortunately it's on carpool karaoke, so you have to kind of <laughs> uh. <laughs> edit out James Corden in your mind. Um, but so, what do you think it is about the White album that's kind of uh, important culturally, but also important from a, a, a woman's perspective, let's say?
3: Well, from a woman's perspective, I think. There's also probably a reluctance, unfortunately, for women performers, especially of that indie ilk, I would say, to cover some of the earlier songs. Maybe not the mid-Beatles, but I think when I discovered that Blondie, and of course that's not an all-female band, but Debbie Harry singing Please Please Me, I was surprised I hadn't heard that a long time ago. I just heard that more recently. But I think there's a reluctance because of all that baggage that comes with the Beatlemania era Beatles for women that I think if you're wanting to make a statement as an artist and be considered an artistic visionary of some kind that you're creating something new and different, the White Album is going to be a great source for you. So I can see why Susie or uh, Kristen Hirsch from The Throwing Muses, because they cover Cry Baby Cry, and then um, The Breeders, Happiness is a Warm Gun, that they would be drawn to the, I think the White Album for me, and I can't speak for all these women and musicians who have covered those songs, but for me that is the last great Beatles album I feel really strongly about that. And maybe that's because I gravitate more towards that middle period myself. Um, but I, I think the White Album also is so eclectic and diverse and eccentric. I think it has just a little bit of everything that the Beatles are so good at in terms of both the music and the lyrics
2: I think that's definitely why it may may maybe appeal to someone of say Billie Eilish's age where you know listening habits now you know on Spotify they could be listening to you know rock, hip hop you know just a huge melting pot and the white album is a bit like that with that kind of melting pot of different styles and
1: i think it also has like quite a homemade quality to it that is also mm. a, bit, a very sort of billy eyelashy thing <laughs> um, so i've got i've sort of mispronounced her name for comic reasons so much i can't now pronounce it properly but that's also true that's
2: also true of the you know early pool stuff uh, and that's i think that's why that is uh, you know has such kind of is so critically respected now. And I think you mentioned this in the book that Linda Eastman is a kind of indie-style kind of icon now. You might call her indie now, where it's kind of... Every, you know, the McCartney and Ram, has got that kind of nice ramshackle uh, lo-fi quality, which, uh, which is very much a kind of thing now, I think.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I remember the White Album was the one album for sure that all my punk or post-punk friends would always be happy to listen to, you know, That's just anecdotally speaking, but that was the one that we all agreed upon that we could listen to together. They wouldn't be so keen perhaps to listen to Rubber Soul, but the White Album for sure.
1: It's interesting that all of those songs are pretty much um, Rishikesh, Rikikesh songs mm. as well. So maybe there's something about the way in which they're written in the more, I suppose they're a bit more languid, not boisterous. There's nothing really that masculine about them, they're a bit more sort of introspective might have something to do with it as well, I guess.
3: But I think the Beatles songs in general, the lyrics have that quality that women can step into them fairly easily. So I, I think that's true of the whole catalogue that you really could, as a female performer, not have too much of an issue of uh, making those songs your own. I think there's a lot of uh, room for, for that sort of movement. With the
1: music maybe that's sort of, sort of something coming from what we were saying at the beginning about their sort of origins in in girl group Motown girl groups and stuff those if those if the songs are strong enough um and they're sort of you know universal then anyone can stay you know whether it's Chains or Anna or
3: yeah I would agree with that <laughs>
2: I just wanted to talk about one more really interesting thing in the book, which was that you drew, drew my attention to this brilliant essay by Jacqueline Warwick, which is um, it's collected in a book called Every Sound There Is, um, which is kind of a, it's a book of essays about Revolver. And her essay, I thought, was really, really interesting. She wrote, writes about the kind of female presence in Revolver, and she talks a lot about She Said, She Said, which is, which, was obviously, which was written about Peter Fonda, um, having this bad trip, or not really a bad trip, but just, well, I guess it was a bad trip, He's you saying, I know what it feels like to be dead. <laughs> it <does laughs> <sound great. laughs> yeah, it doesn't sound <laughs> brilliant. Um, <Yeah. laughs> but obviously John Lennon changing, changing the uh, the pronouns to she said, she said, and uh, and that, that's a really interesting decision. And also then she talks a lot about, the essay's called I'm Eleanor Rigby, which is uh, Aretha Franklin covered Eleanor Rigby and changed the, the title, to, or changed the, the way she sings the chorus to I'm Eleanor Rigby which is so interesting and it's such an incredible cover. Um, but yeah, I, I, I found that really interesting because she talks about this idea that almost as if Revolver was a person. If Revolver was a man, what kind of person would it be? And, and she talks about it in terms of these songs on Revolver as almost being like conversations with women and, things and uh, it's such an interesting essay you can you can read it on on google books um
1: yeah we'll put it in the description for this podcast
2: yeah it's very very well written and she also goes into a lot of the music musicological uh kind of studies of the of the book which is kind of interesting um but yeah i wondered what 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 you thought of that essay and then maybe what you thought of those kind of notions in revolver
3: yeah i mean well But I think, you know, as I was saying before, I think what she's saying is applicable to the whole discography, really, of the Beatles, that women can inhabit those spaces that the Beatles have created musically and lyrically, and they can do all sorts of interesting things with that. For instance, uh, she's saying... That you know Aretha Franklin becomes Eleanor Rigby, and so she changes the dynamic of that song by inhabiting that role and um, becoming this powerful figure rather than the Eleanor Rigby that we 're thinking of originally, this sort of sad, lonely spinster uh, and then I thought about it a lot actually, with Dear Prudence, and how Susie reworks that, and how when I hear her sing that that it's really I can see it about two female friends that she's really addressing this female friend to just sort of not be so fearful and feel empowered to do what she wants to do
2: yeah it completely changes the dynamic yeah
3: I think those are really good examples of how uh, Beatles songs can be transformed through the delivery of, you know, the female voice and um, a woman reshaping uh, those lyrics uh, to create something new through the Beatles songbook, which, of course, with any cover, that's what you want, isn't it? It doesn't matter what song you're covering, but especially songs that are so iconic to make them really something special, something different, something unique, as well as people having that love for the original song. I think those are great examples of how these performers have done it.
2: Yeah. And Emily Lou Harris covering Here, There and Everywhere as, as well is very interesting. It becomes a mm.
3: lot,
2: uh, kind of very tender love song. Um, I was trying to think, are there any Beatles covers by women where they didn't change pronouns?
3: Uh, the Mona Lisa twins, who I write about in the book, they have recorded and performed a lot of Beatles songs and they don't change the pronouns. Uh, I'm trying to think when I covered, I covered three Beatles songs once upon a time and I think I did change the pronouns, but I think that's really changed, I think, in the 90s to like early 2000s going into more of the contemporary period I think women aren't doing that yeah. really anymore. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I was thinking about maybe, you know, what makes, say, Amy Winehouse covering Valerie. I mean, obviously it's a girl's name, so you have quite a difficult job changing. But, like, what makes that so good is, it, 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 you know, she's covering the song, but she gives it such a kind of extra layer you know it sounds uh-huh, the way uh-huh. her yeah. delivery uh-huh. is quite kind of alexis pedritis called it filthy I think, <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs>
2: which I, I think it's you know I, I think it just adds something to it doesn't it it, it really depends on the song but I, li- I like it when you know there's a great folk song called um it called black is the color and of my true love's hair and Cara Dillon covers it and doesn't change the pronouns. Mm -hmm. And it's, um, Mm -hmm. it just gives it that free shot, but also it gives it that kind of Mm -hmm. idea that uh, you're singing, you're just carrying on the song as it were, you know, you're kind of, Mm -hmm.
3: yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah. It's this kind of song, not the songwriter kind of thing, or you're kind of inhabiting a character, you
3: know? Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah. So I think there are all sorts of reasons now where, women just don't feel like they want to or have to do that you know there are all sorts of reasons for keeping it to the original but yeah I you know it's there's a whole spectrum of covers by women artists that are so different because if you go all the way back to yesterday covered by Marianne Faithful, it is so true to Paul McCartney's delivery of it and in fact he said that when he first when the song first came to him and he was really hearing it and writing the lyrics and so on, that he envisioned it as a song that Marianne Faithful would sing. So it's not surprising then that her version of it is, is quite close to the Beatles original.
1: Um, so we'll just finish off by asking our, our stock question. Okay. Um, <laughs> which uh, is uh, Do you have a controversial Beatles opinion?
3: I was thinking about this because I've been obviously hearing you ask this of other people, and I would say uh, there are two, and one is I'm not a huge fan of Abbey Road the album, even mm. though I really love Because, and yep. uh, there are a few songs on there that I can hear more often, uh, and I, as a concept, I I like it and the historic value of it i appreciate but just for the music itself as i said for me the white album is sort of the last yeah. great beatles album for me uh so Abbey road and let it be but i know Abbey road is so loved that i guess that's yeah. why i think it's a bit of a controversial statement
1: i would say that definitely qualifies as a controversial opinion <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, is, is it, i don't know like i was chatting to um Simon Love, uh, a musician, and he's not a huge fan of Abbey Road. I think Abbey Road sounds different. Weren't they using a different desk or something like this? There's some technical thing where it's like, I think it does sound really different to other Beatles records.
1: It's definitely the most polished, most modern, printly produced one. Yeah,
3: Yeah. and I think that's maybe why I don't love it as much because I'm such a sucker for that jingle jangle, you know, very 60s Beatles sound, which for me it's, you know, day tripper, rain, you know, paperback writer, give me that.
2: There's that kind of warmth, warm squashed sound of maybe that mid period and whereas Abbey Road is definitely kind of leaning into the 70s more expansive production kind of thing
3: exactly exactly
1: I mean, I love it for precisely that <laughs> yeah.
2: reason. Because uh,
3: yeah.
1: <laughs> it's like sort of leaving the door open as you, yeah, as you walk yeah. out. Here you go, Genesis. No. <laughs> yeah. uh, oh no! <laughs> I know. I, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah,
2: and and close the door. Yeah, close the door. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but but I think it is. I mean, I've said this before. Abbey Road did seem like it's very Queen Genesis. It does kind of. It's a stone's throw away from that stuff, I think, with the second side.
3: I mean, don't get me wrong there. I, I love a lot of music from the early 70s, but for me, that is more David Bowie and T-Rex. You know, I really love that. And um, But I, I just, if, if I may, the other thing I wanted to add is that I think the Beatles should have continued to tour. Mm. I don't think they should have stopped oh, okay. because I do think that they could have, figured out ways to bring some of the the newness and the techniques and I think their audience would have also changed in terms of their reaction to the newer songs because you see all those interviews of some of the Beatle maniacs saying oh you know I'm here at you know the 1966 Shea Stadium concert but mm, I don't love them as much as I did last mm. <laughs> year. I think there, there may have been a shift yeah. in the audience had the Beatles continued. And I don't think it would have hampered them in the studio. I think they still would have been able to do what they did. So maybe that's more of a controversial statement than the other one, I don't know. Mm. But I thought I'd I think, add that. I think it would be
2: controversial to them if you, if you told them in the 67 <laughs> or something. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, but oh, no. yeah. yeah.
3: I mean, obviously, they were sick of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah they were sick of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's true.
1: It does feel like a massive shame when you see that final sort of rooftop thing of just how they could, even five years without, or whatever it was, four years, they were still absolutely brilliant.
2: Yeah, Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: and you, yeah, and the technology to for to put on big events like that changed so much in that five years as well that yeah, it would have been definitely feasible. But mm. that's a good one. I like it.
3: Ah, oh, thanks.
1: <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you, thank you so much for your time. And is is the book available to buy now?
3: It is. It's only uh, in hardback at the moment. The paperback version comes out next year. So it's hardback and uh, ebook at the moment, but yeah, the with the academic presses, the paperbacks usually come out later. So that will be out next year, but yeah, it's there, and I, I'm really excited that people are interested in it. And thank you for reading it.
1: So that was. Christine Feldman Barrett Uh, What a wonderful episode, really enjoyed that one
2: Yeah, it was great I really liked the chat about Kind of female artists covering Beatles songs I thought that was Mm. very interesting And, you know, it's just It is interesting how much The Beatles music has meant To kind of rock and indie artists I mean, for for obvious reasons, I suppose But, I I mean One of the things I thought was interesting Was, we were talking about Can you think of... um, a Beatles song that's been covered by a woman where they haven't changed the pronouns. And since we mm-hmm. recorded it, uh I I heard the Billie Eilish she's she's covered something where she hasn't yeah. changed the pronouns and it's it's a really interesting cover, I think. It does just do something extra to the song, I think. And mm. you know, whatever your decision.
1: Really yeah. And a lot's of subsequently heard a lot more of their really early ones where they didn't as well, which must be been sort of quite radical mm. then. Mm. Um but yeah, really enjoyed that one. If you want to hear an extended version of it um, with loads of good stuff uh, we mentioned in the intro, then you can uh, join our Patreon by going to patreon.com forward slash personal Beatles. Um, do give us a rating if you enjoyed that and you listen to on Apple Podcasts because um, it does help people find the show and stuff so if you give us a, a little five star thing we do read all of the reviews as well so um you know we really really appreciate it when people do that and uh, yeah keep in contact and follow all the social medias and we'll be back we got a really fun episode next week actually that we recorded at the time of recording this it was last night and um still sort of still a few sore heads (laughs) a few sore heads yeah um a rare sort of irl one with uh, jeremy pritchard who is the bassist in a fantastic band everything everything
2: yeah that was so much fun to record and he's very knowledgeable and he's very mm. handsome, and we are both <laughs> very jealous of his life. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah, he's uh, just such a such an unbelievably lovely guy. As well. he was he so He cool. listened to the show and um, asked if he could pop on. And, mm. uh, yeah, he just came round. We had some beers and pizza and talked about the Beatles for a couple of hours and yeah. then went to the pub. Pretty much a perfect evening. It was brilliant,
2: yeah. Lots of great bass chat,
1: which was good. Yeah. Of, I know, mean, we really haven't cool. gone sort of deep dive into Paul's bass playing, so this is definitely the showcase of that. And uh, mm. he talks about it so interestingly. Yeah. And the sort of dynamic of being a guitarist come bassist mm. um, and lots of, you know, the influence on the Beatles and other bands on everything, everything. Um, so it's a, a really fascinating one. Uh, I'm looking forward to listening to it back. And yeah uh, yeah, you can hear that Next Tuesday of course as always There will be an ad free Extended version of it as well on the Patreon So have a great week We'll see you then Your Own Personal Beatles is presented by Jack Pelling And Robin Allender The podcast artwork is done by Morgan Ritchie It's produced by me Jack Pelling And is a Homespun Sounds production